Hello and welcome to the Sheldrake Vernon Dialogues with myself, Mark Vernon and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi, Rupert. Hello, Mark. Rupert, someone pointed out to me that there's a, a sprinkling of figures in the public space who are taking a good look, a new look, even becoming Christians. And wonder whether this is significant in some way. Um, it's partly come out of the Jordan Peterson experience, you know, who has very famously raised the subject of Christianity for people and led them to wonder whether there's something in this tradition. But figures like Paul Kingsnorth, Martin Shaw, um, and then other figures like I don't know, Sally Phillips, Mary Harrington. Um, it feels like there's a new look going on at Christianity. And, and the reason why it might be new is that it feels a bit like it's running in parallel with institutional Christianity. Um, so, for example, Martin Shaw and Paul Kingsnorth have turned to Romanian orthodoxy to find a church to go to, which they love for the mystery and the sense of tradition. But also, um, it feels like they're wanting to, well, I think Martin Shaw has even said, rewild Christianity. The idea that actually Christianity in its history is not the rather sort of monocrop Christianity that you get today, very much focused on a particular version of the person of Jesus, um, and rather wanting to discover other aspects of the figure of Christ, but also saints and stories and places and a kind of the whole rich array of what would have made Christianity, certainly in the medieval world. Um, so, I mean, I wonder whether that sort of makes sense to you. They're, they're partly also, you know, there were books that came out a few years back now, Francis Spufford's book, Unapologetic, um, which isn't so much wild Christianity, but felt very fresh to a lot of people. Um, and then there's writers like Marilyn Robinson, you know, who too write very freely from their Christian tradition as well. Um, so, you know, it's not, I don't think it's going to reverse the decline of Christianity in the West. I don't think anyone's suggesting that, but it's kind of interesting and, and feels like there's a spirit in it that I wanted, if you wanted to talk about. Yes, well, I mean, it's a subject I'm very interested in because, um, you know, I myself, after years of being an atheist um, and then exploring spirituality through mainly Indian, but also Sufi traditions, uh, returned to a Christian path. So, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a subject to interest me personally. Um, and I think that, you know, one reason it's happening, it's sort of slightly surprising, it's, is because there's been this extraordinarily anti-Christian movement, uh, extraordinarily strong anti-Christian movement among Western intellectuals in general. Um, you know, it, it became, I suppose, by about the 1920s, it became, you know, leading intellectuals like the Bloomsbury Group and, and people of that kind were anti-religious, certainly anti-Christian. And uh, and since then, we, we've found that 
lots of people who've taken up an interest in spirituality have usually adopted the ABC principle, anything but Christian, you know, that where um, it can be Hindu meditation, Zen meditation, Buddhism uh, uh, in sort of diluted forms, um, shamanic drumming, kirtan chanting, um, as long as it's not Christian. And the whole New Age movement really is about spirituality, which is uncoupled from uh, the Christian tradition. Um, so we've had, uh, and and the reason for all this uncoupling, I think, is that there, uh, there was a tremendous polemic against Christianity that started in the late 18th century with the anti-clerical movements of the French Revolution and became a standard trope of, of intellectuals, you know, concentrating on the damage the church had done through the Inquisition, the imposition of uh, sort of all sorts of uh, tyrannical rule of uh, at least over people's minds and souls and and so forth. I mean, kind of historical polemics, um, together with um, the feeling that this was simply incredible. These stories of miracles and so forth are incredible in the scientific age. And Buddhism and Hinduism and meditation seemed more acceptable because they're talking about changes in the mind. They're not so based in uh, historical events. Um, anyway, all of this, I think, led to mass defection from Christianity of Western intellectuals in general, so that in intellectual circles, it simply became impossible or uh, to be a Christian or, or at least difficult or problematic. And I remember when I was uh, fairly early on in, in my 30s, when I returned to Christianity, I was talking to an eminent scientist and I mentioned the fact that I was a Christian and went to church. And he said, that's unbelievable. I said, I can't believe that any scientist would ever go to church or be a Christian, just impossible. So I think that's why it's surprising, because there's been this scorched earth uh, among intellectuals. Um, and most people who take up spirituality are very keen to say they're spiritual, but not religious. So I think what's interesting here is there's a kind of breakthrough, breaking through that prejudice um, to looking at Christianity afresh, as you say, um, looking, returning to it without seeing it through that great curtain of polemic, but rather reactive, actually responding to it. And I myself find that um, what I respond to very strongly in the Christian tradition is firstly the holy places. I love the cathedrals and churches that we have, especially medieval cathedrals and churches. And I feel they're one of our most underappreciated assets, that they're you know, most people don't go there, most people don't go into them. And yet, there are these places of calm, peace, beauty, uh, which are part of our heritage. And uh, I think it's very important to connect with them, the places. Then the, um, the great choral tradition, as you know, I'm very keen on choral evensong, as you are too, and um, happening every day in our cathedrals. And this wonderful heritage of beauty and music and lovely prayers. Um, then the revival of pilgrimage to Christian holy places uh, is another way in which many people are reconnecting with this tradition, not reconnecting through studying books and, and, and belief systems and spending months on the catechism, 
but rather reconnecting through experience, through going to these moving services, connecting with these holy places. And I think that what's the, the fact that some people who've returned to Christianity go for other exotic forms of it, like Romanian Orthodoxy, um, is because the Orthodox tradition has retained this kind of rather mystical element. It's always been more mystically oriented. And also the liturgy there is is very right brain. I mean, the, the translation of the liturgy into the vernacular at the Reformation and then into modern English in the 20th century is very left brain. It's about words, about books, about texts, about interpretation of texts. Whereas if you go to an Orthodox service, it lasts for hours and all this chanting in languages you don't understand with incense and icons and dim light and stuff. It's very much a right brain experience, as the Roman Catholic services were until they changed to the vernacular. And, and many people who are Roman Catholic uh, you know, are very nostalgic about the pre-Vatican um, II um, Latin rites. Um, so I think really what this this move back is, is driven more by an attraction to the experience um, uh, the experience of liturgy, the experience of holy places, the experience of pilgrimage, the experience of sacred chant, and less driven by you know, careful study of the Bible, um, Bible classes, um, you know, biblical exegesis, on which Protestant Christianity was so strongly based. So uh, I see it as a this return of experiential Christianity for the kind of people we're talking about. Um, I mean, there are still evangelicals uh, who come to it more from a biblical base. And, and my view is that there are many different ways of approaching this tradition. I, I don't think one's right and the other's wrong. I think that think different ones appeal to different people. And the experiential route certainly appeals to me more. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was recently reading a book about the history of belief and it's very striking after the reformation in the 16th century how quite quickly within a decade being a christian was determined by your propositional assent um the, the book i was reading um it describes how in the 1520s in about a decade suddenly in europe hundreds of catechisms were printed you know, it's after the printing press invention, both on Protestant and then in the Counter-Reformation on Catholic sides. And a kind of anxiety spread quite quickly. Are you making the right intellectual confession in order to secure your salvation? Um, and that was a radical wrench from medieval Christianity, which in the great buildings you describe and it's, you know, it's very remarkable that there's buildings in a place like England that are up to a thousand years old that are still living buildings. I mean, that is quite something. Um, but, you know, people would have used them not to be um, kind of corralled in ranks, um, paying attention to what was going on up front, um, but rather would have, you know, paid their homage to the shrine, um, doused themselves in holy water, lit candles, um, you know, the priests were doing whatever the priests were doing in the choir. Um, but 
a Christian in the medieval world might never have said the words, I believe, um, which is quite surprising, partly because they wouldn't have spoken Latin and said credo, but partly because they weren't expected to. Um, and so there is something of a sense of kind of return. And another area which I wonder whether um, is significant is that it feels to me that what might be called the supernatural is quietly becoming more acceptable. Um, I mean, I, I was recently reading a couple of books, um, one called um, Why Woo Woo Works, written by a kind of cognitive scientist saying, look, things like telepathy, things like um, kind of placebos, um, even the sense that there's others into other intelligences, um, you know, which traditionally might have been called angels. Um, the evidence is sort of in for a lot of this now. And it's just um, a kind of knee-jerk reaction that's not accepting that. And moreover, it's not just that the evidence is in, which makes it perhaps a bit more acceptable to talk about, but of course people live with these experiences all the time. And then I was also just reading a book called Encountering Mystery by a New Testament scholar who I really like called Dale Allison. And he has written this book now that he's at the end of his career where he feels freer. And in the book, he describes how he was launched on his stellar biblical career. You know, he's a professor at Princeton because he had these strange mystical experiences in his late teens. He has one he describes where he suddenly felt the stars had come down from heaven and were all around him. And he was having this very powerful encounter with the divine. And, you know, he didn't tell anyone for decades and yet it launched his career. And then he corralled a lot of the evidence, which you'll be very familiar with about things like NDEs, angels and so on. And says, look, this is happening. Christianity is foolish not to take it seriously. And yet quite often it's um, discounted or just sort of treated as a bit unfortunate, perhaps by religious leaders. Um, you know, they may be worried about authority or whatever it might be. Um, so th that sort of sense of the mystical, which you described there, is perhaps also linked then to the sense of encounter in often quite strange ways. I mean, certainly Paul Kingsnorth has written quite a lot about how he felt chased down by Jesus in various ways through synchronicities, through what people said, I think through dreams and things. Um, and so maybe we're becoming a bit more porous again. And people are looking to local ways to understand that kind of sense of resonance with more. Um, and so drawing on the Christian tradition in a form that, you know, perhaps for many who go to church, you know, they're barely aware of actually. Um, but yeah, it's kind of pushing back through. Well, in the Middle Ages, there was a, uh... There were all sorts of ways of pursuing a Christian path, and there were hermits living in caves and in hermitages. There were contemplative monks spending hours a day in contemplative prayer, what we now call meditation, and convents with uh, women doing this. I mean, there was a very strong mystical strand in medieval Christianity, as there is in Orthodox Christianity today. Um, and in the Protestant Reformation, I think that side of it was rather suppressed. The monasteries were dissolved, and these communities where people devoted their lives to uh, a religious life, including lots of prayer and chanting and meditation and 
visionary experiences. There were lots of visionary saints in the Middle Ages. Um, it all became much more about books and texts and things. Um, and the printing press, of course, accelerated that process. Um, so I think, yes, I think what's happening is, is a rediscovery. And in theology as well, uh, the so-called radical orthodoxy school of theology is really rooting itself in the mystical theology of the early church in the Middle Ages, rather than the post-scientific revolution theology, which tends to see God as outside nature. I mean, the, the, the scientific revolution in the 17th century definitely accelerated this process because the deal that, that was worked out between science and religion then, following Descartes' model, was that science got the whole of nature and could investigate everything about nature, stars, planets, the, the earth, animals, plants, the human body, all of which was treated as inanimate matter. Um, and religion got God, angels, and the human spirit, um, uh, which was treated as the realm of religion, but removed from nature. And God became supernatural, and the spiritual world became supernatural. Then natural became unconscious material mechanistic. And so the expulsion of God from nature um, meant that God became very remote. And then for the deists in the late 18th century, uh, God was simply the rational mind, the engineer who designed the universe and then pressed the start button and then stood back. And everything went on as if there was no God. And so then the atheists said, well, you know, why bother with God at all? If we say the universe is eternal, you don't even need this mysterious rational engineering creator God. And so then it was a, then you got full-blown atheism where the only thing is, uh, is material world and human minds are just aspects of human brains. Um, and in that context, Christianity is incredible. I mean, most of what it's claiming life after death, um, you know, um, the, the way in which people can be linked to God through prayer, all these things are just make-believe or fantasy. However, uh, I think that what's happening now, along with the changes you described, is a breakdown in this dogmatic materialism. Uh, dogmatic materialism leaves no room for God, religion, or spiritual experience, except if it's interpreted as changes inside our own heads. Uh, there's nothing out there in terms of spirits and things. And so I think another ingredient in this change we're talking about is psychedelic experience, because many people who've taken psychedelics have experienced the realms of consciousness that they enter into, which are not just their own mind. They're in the presence of greater forms of consciousness than their own. And many people who've taken psychedelics also think that nature is not just dead and mechanical, but alive, and they're connected with the natural world as well as with a greater forms of consciousness. Um, and so um, I think this the, the psychedelic experience tends to lead people towards a greater sense of the life of nature. And if when, when this is thought through, I think it leads to a view of more like panentheism, God in nature and nature in God, not God as totally separate from nature outside space and time and utterly transcendent and nature is completely devoid of the divine presence uh, except through humans uh, but rather 
seeing God as present everywhere, sustaining the world in the world. This is much more the traditional Christian view than the idea of a mechanical God somehow engineering nature from outside. Um, and that's why returning to this more mystical form of theology is, is part of the revolution that's going on at the moment. So I think that the, 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 the breakdown of this barrier created by mechanistic materialism is also part of the thing that's opening up the possibility of seeing consciousness as underlying nature, underlying the universe. Our own ability to contact this ultimate consciousness through meditation, through prayer, through mystical vision, through mystical experiences, um, it, it becomes meaningful again. And certainly for many people, it's meaningful through their own experience. Lots of people have spontaneous mystical experiences. Um, and so, and, and all of this was recognized and, and part of the Christian tradition. And so I think that rediscovering these aspects of our own tradition is part of what's going on. And that's one reason that I think our medieval churches and cathedrals help us do that so much. I mean, really keen on cathedrals, as you know. And um, when you go into one of our great cathedrals like Wells or Lincoln or, or Canterbury, or, um, these, these cathedrals are designed to change our consciousness, to open our minds, to put us into a different state of mind. And, and they still work today. And they come from an era when that sense of the connection with God, the presence of God in nature, and uh, through worship and through beauty in cathedrals, uh, being portals where we could become more open to God. Um, all of that takes on a new meaning. And it means that instead of denying our own tradition and searching in the furthest corners of the earth for uh, spiritual experiences, we can ground ourselves again in our own tradition, in our own lands, in our own country, and it, with our, and reconnect with our own heritage. So yeah. for me, that's one of the main motives for this move, certainly on my own part, but I see it in other people too. When you say um, uh, the incredible nature of Christianity, I think that's really important too. Uh, my friend Elizabeth Oldfield, who runs uh, the Sacred Podcast, she used this expression, full-strength Christianity, actually when she was talking with Paul Kingsnorth. <laughs> and she said that it's almost like many people in the West have been administered a mild form of Christianity, and it's kind of inoculated them against Christianity full on. And this phrase, full-strength Christianity, really stayed with me and made me wonder, you know, what that might be, look like. And I feel very drawn to the idea that there's some things in the New Testament that Jesus said that Paul said that are deeply shocking if you let yourself really be hit by them. You know, so Paul in his letters will routinely talk about things like death being abolished. Um, you know, what on earth can that mean? And Jesus, I think, routinely says to the disciples, look, this business about increasing your faith, living better, you've kind of missed the point. It's do you know the divine within you? You are gods, he says at one point. And that kind of invitation to take the sort of fullest, un, 
um, mediated aspects of what's at the heart of Christianity. I I find that I want to know more about that. Um, I, you know, I was, I was recently reading another book um, about C.S. Lewis and the med- it's called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And I thought it would be an interesting study on C.S. Lewis and how he read Dante and how he read Boethius figures, you know, that I'm interested in too. But I, as I read it more, I realized that in C.S. Lewis is not just an apology for Christianity in the sense of does it make rational sense, but was a desire to bring back to the modern mind things that even if you're moving on beyond spiritual, spiritual, scientific materialism can seem quite extraordinary. So he says that C.S. Lewis didn't turn to the resurrection, for example, as a kind of proof that somehow everything Jesus said was true or proof that um, he's the son of God, which is often how the resurrection is treated now. And so it's kind of held on to in a rather fideistic sense um, that, you know, we don't know what it means, but somehow because of this spectacular miracle, we can trust God's going to save us after death. Um, no, um, C.S. Lewis was saying that the resurrection launches a completely different way of being in the world. And I think in this, he's actually very close to his friend Owen Barfield, you know, that I've written quite a lot about. Um, it is a shift of consciousness that, as you say, you can still sense in great cathedrals um, and is about expecting to live in a world that's much thinner and more porous and influenced by the divine presence and other presences as well. And C.S. Lewis wanted people to live in that rich ecology of spiritual awareness. Um, And it's sort of ironic that he's often read as this um, rather rational sort of step-by-step apologist for a kind of Christian creed, when actually he was hoping to help unleash a new felt sense of this kind of Christian universe, or at least the universe as seen through the Christian tradition. I mean, just, just another another thought related to this is um, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, the historian Tom Holland, his book Dominion about the history of Christianity has been very, very successful. But it's a book that actually deeply disturbs me because <coughs> what he does is he says that we're living still in a very, very Christian world. Um, But it's a kind of perverse form of Christianity that's taken the shape of secular humanism. And so he says that, you know, whereas before Christianity talked about God influencing things in the secular humanist frame, progress somehow magically influences all things. Um, Or he says that, you know, whereas in the ancient world, it was the strong man that was admired, the hero. Um, Now in the modern world, um, it's the weak that are cared for and looked after. Now, I'm not convinced, actually, that's a Christian invention, exactly, as he says, because I think that someone like Socrates was um, already being presented as a different kind of hero, a spiritual hero, and and certainly influenced, I think, a lot of early Christians when they came to trying to understand what had happened to Jesus. Um, But the reason why it disturbs me is it because I feel like a lot of Christians have been sort of reaching, even grabbing Tom Holland's book, again, as a kind of apology for a rather dull down, weak form of Christianity that says, look, secular humanists, you kind of still need us because we're the origins of what you believe to be true. Kind of please give us a voice once more. Um, But that is to conform 
to this um, secular agenda, a sort of very this-worldly, concerned with important things, no doubt, like social justice, but for me, missing out on the full-strength Christianity with these astonishing, shocking, but really powerful invitations to know life in a completely different way. Um, I think that's what the kingdom of God means. You know, Jesus wasn't just hoping to nudge us in an ethically slightly better direction. He wanted to break through um, what people were trapped by and reveal the divine life. Um, yeah, so, you know, that that whole kind of cluster of um, the dumbing down of Christianity into kind of, you know, forms of liberalism plus a few prayers. I wonder whether that is um, being challenged too by this marginal. I do think it's marginal. I don't want to make too much of it. But nonetheless, I get drawn to it because it feels like a radical, full-strength Christianity that these people are finding and trying to speak about as well. Yes, well, I certainly think it's, it has to be transformative. And one way it can be transformative in the kind of modest daily basis is through prayer. Um, what I found in when I give talks in, about spiritual practices, the theme, as you know, of my recent books, um, science and spiritual practices and ways to go beyond and why they work, um, is that when I ask the kind of audiences who come to my talks, how many people meditate or have meditated, it's like 90%. When I ask how many people pray in the sense of petitionary prayer, it's about 20%. And so the practice of prayer, which is the practice of relating to um, to a, a greater spiritual reality or realities than ourselves, because one can pray, pray not only to God, but to saints and angels. Um, there are many spiritual, spiritual beings one can pray to. Um, that connection with a spiritual source beyond oneself and the fact that one has a link to a spiritual reality that's not just inside one's head is part of that transformative process. And lots of modern people don't do it because they think that meditation's okay because it's all about what's inside your head. It's scientific. You can measure changes in the brain and stuff. But prayer requires you to believe in there's something out there. There's no point in praying something out unless there's something out there. So um, I think that the experience of prayer as part of one's way of life, which I pray every day, and as many people do, um, is a way of having a, a daily sense of that connection that there's one's part of something much larger than oneself. One's life is part of something bigger and, and one's part of a larger process. That's one sense in which it takes on more than just going to church on Sundays. And, and many people who do go to church on Sundays do pray on a daily basis. So uh, for them, the actual public expression of their faith is just part of it. It's not all of it. Um, I think the other thing in relation to C.S. Lewis is that on the one hand, he was giving lots of talks um, to people, and most of the people he was talking to had been influenced by scientific materialism and rationalism and stuff. He had to meet people where they were and start from uh, his arguments from that point of view, um, or at least relate to that point of view. But I think where he was really trying to have a transformative effect was through his fiction, especially the Narnia books and um, his science fiction stories like uh, Out of the Silent Planet and uh, and so on, which 
where he's actually trying to present a whole different way, a more magical kind of world, uh, which his friend Tolkien was also doing, of course, uh, and Charles Williams. I mean, all of them, uh, all that group from Oxford, the Inklings, um, when they went into the realm of fiction, were using fiction as a way of presenting a worldview that was not just scientific rationalism, but had a spiritual presence and 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 a sense of spiritual adventure as part of the of of actual life rather than merely in fiction i mean they were trying to bring this so through fiction so that people could actually experience it in their own lives i think no that makes sense i mean Tolkien was quite explicit about it i think that he felt that um the fictional account of the lord of the rings which of course only goes from strength to strength. There's this new Amazon multi-million pound series, The Power of the Ring. Um, and he hoped it would awaken the archetypes almost. I don't know if that was quite his word, um, that Jungian word, but nonetheless awaken through a new myth, the presence of that side of life, you know, in the world again, once more. Um, and so it's like, you know, he wrote them as an initiation um, not just as entertainment. Um, and, you know, I think that the case has been made that the Narnia stories too, this book by Michael Ward, that makes the case that each of the Narnia stories, the seven books, relates directly to one of the seven planetary spheres in traditional medieval cosmology. And so carries a kind of facet of spiritual life in you know, interwoven between the events in the very mood of the books and so on. Um, and so I guess that you have to read them a bit intentionally um, in order that it can have that effect on you to carry it into um, wider life. Um, but yeah, that, I th I, that, that very much makes sense to me. I think the intellectual side also matters um, too, in fact. I mean, you know, I'm, I know you agree with this, but, um, you know, there has been... Um, I think uh, a tendency in Christian apologetics to, again, have Christianity make sense within the accepted um, creeds of scientific materialism and, um, you know, hence the turn to proofs, um, you know, the reading of stories um, as if they kind of um, are just another way of talking about what science is discovering. Um, and there's something in that, but you know, I, I, I feel, too, that there's quite a, a yearning, again, probably on the fringes of mainstream science, but nonetheless, a yearning for fresh paradigms, for new ways um, of relating to the world that the old paradigms just don't get. And consciousness is the obvious example of that. Um, but, you know, even um, in the domain of physics, um, I, I, you know, the, the James Webb telescope has been beaming back. Um, these incredible images of the universe um, in recent weeks. And it's so striking how in the one moment the scientists will say they're spectacular, wonderful, awe-inspiring, you know, really inviting us to fall down in wonder at the cosmos. And yet in the next moment they're saying, you know, it's vast expanses of meaningless mechanism, you know, that um, is completely indifferent to our presence. Um, but as C.S. Lewis actually remarks in one place, he says, the Andromeda galaxy owes its wonder to the human mind. It's the human mind that can see the wonder of these things. And so it's a lovely sense that may, 
maybe what we're rediscovering right in the midst of the science is that our minds are connected to the divine, to, to the cosmos, which is why that we're so sort of fascinated in it and feel so drawn towards it. But that in itself might help us awaken to what these wonderful images are just expressing and speaking of in their beauty. Um, and so, you know, someone like C.S. Lewis, I think, would even go so far as to say that this is the music of the spheres being heard again once more in a modern guise. Um, and so just surfacing that conscious possibility, the consciousness of that, um, you know, can be quite transformative. Yes. Well, I certainly think that old style scientific materialism is threadbare, worn out, unconvincing, defended only by dogma, dogmatic assertions. And I think that within the sciences, as I argue in several of my books, you know, I think that we're moving towards a much greater sense of the life of nature. And as you know, I think the sun and other stars may be conscious and that as we explore the cosmos, uh, we're revealing not only the vastness of the cosmos and the details of galaxies and so forth. Um, there, there's a sense in which if those beings are conscious, if galaxies have galactic minds and stuff, the fact that we're discovering them through the web telescope and other things means that our consciousness is actually spreading out into the universe further and further and actually contacting those. They may feel it if someone's living in one of these distant galaxies when there's human attention on that galaxy for the first time ever, they may actually feel a change. There's, there may be uh, actual relationship between set up through minds. Anyway, I think that the as we move towards a new and much richer understanding of nature and of consciousness, then discussions which involve our religious traditions and, and, and in particular the Christian tradition for those of us who come from Christian backgrounds and live in traditionally Christian countries, um, are an exciting part of the discussion. I mean, it's no, no longer kind of dustily going back to ancient texts as if as a purely historical phenomenon, but actually the most exciting intellectual discussions at the moment, in my opinion, are ones that involve theology, consciousness beyond the human level, and so on. The least exciting ones that are, are just about further details of molecular mechanisms inside the cell nuclei and so on. Um, um, so uh, I think that this is this actually is where the exciting intellectual action is at the moment. Yeah, well, look, here's to the rewilding of Christianity. And, you know, heaven knows we need new vision, not just in the sciences, but in the world at large as well. So I'm, you know, that's that's been good to air and hopefully tease out some possibilities that have struck chords with those listening in as well. So thanks very much, Rupert. Well, thank you, Mark.